What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Lit Up. On this week's episode, we have Kathleen Alcott. The day we recorded this, it was pouring. It was There was torrential rain in New York City, and Kathleen kindly made her way to my friend's apartment in West Village. Now, she arrived looking a little drowned, but absolutely glorious anyway, And we sat on the floor and started this conversation about her new novel, America Was Hard to Find. It's her third novel and it examines the political fault lines of the 1960s in America, from anti-Vietnam activism to the Apollo program and the Cold War and later to the AIDS crisis. This multi-generational novel starts with the spark between Faye Fern, who, in an effort to spurn her privileged upbringing, is bartending at a pilot's bar in the Moab Desert. This is where she meets the married pilot Vincent Kahn, who becomes an astronaut and ends up being the first man to walk on the moon. Their casual affair ends quickly, but its consequences linger and Faye never tells Vincent about their son Wright. Now this novel spans from Ecuador, America, outer space even, and back again. And I hope you can hear from this interview just how fascinating the book is and how fascinating the author is who wrote it. Here's Kathleen. I'm lucky enough to have Kathleen Olcott sitting opposite me on the floor, on a rug. (laughs) She matches this beautiful... Well, I was going to say she matches the beautiful rug, but I really meant that she's the beautiful thing on the rug. (laughs) Um, And she made it here in the rain. We're in New York in my friend's apartment. Thank you, Kate. And we're here because she's written an exquisite book that is very unusual and evocative. And it's called America Was Hard to Find. (laughs) Thank you for making it. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I remember talking to you some eight years ago at some bar in New York, right after my first novel came out, maybe seven years ago, I guess, very briefly. 
and just thinking that you were a luminous person and I didn't want to talk to the other people around. Yes. <laughs> and that's the last time I saw you. So how, how nice that we've been reconnected. I know. And in the meantime, you've written another book. Yes. And I did hear that this one took you about five years. Mm-hmm. And did it start on a road trip? Um, it started on a trip to South America, Um I was spending the winter in Ecuador and I sprained my ankle um, backpacking. And so I was sort of suddenly really put in the position of observer, uh, more so than we even we generally are as a traveler because my position was sort of, <laughs> sort of fixed. Um, I was just kind of set up in bed or in whichever car, um, occasionally my, you know, my partner at the time was <laughs> slinging me over his back. <laughs> um, and I was at the time reading about the American space program for no reason in particular. I just, sometimes I'll identify some kind of lacuna in my knowledge. And I think it just, I don't know, this was let's see, the winter of 2013, 2014, it just dawned on me that I knew very little about this momentous and relatively recent moment in my country's history. And I had started to read about it. And uh, every time I opened a new book, you know, the experience would be the same. I would be really astonished by the spectacle and the concentration of manpower and the rigorous training, all the kind of stuff that, you know, shows up in commencement addresses, basically all this, all this typical American stuff about sacrifice and single-minded concentration, et cetera. But then I kept coming across what felt like footnotes, although, you know, they appeared in the text, but they were never very, they were never expanded upon very much about goodwill tours that different, you know, Apollo astronauts or Gemini astronauts would conduct that were met with vitriol, um, particularly in South America. And I mean, it sounds so stupid to say, but it just had never occurred to me as an American educated um, pretty badly, (laughs) like the American public school system, to think about the Apollo program as anything but virtuous. And so to suddenly conceive of it as a program that spent money, which could have been spent stopping, you know, a horrific war, which could have been spent dealing with civil rights issues that were, you know, that were really on the tongue of the um, kind of other American public. I think we can think about there being two American publics in in mid-century America. Anyway, it it was astonishing. So this collision, because this period of time was what the late... I looked it up because your book, um, it's one of those books that you read and enjoy for kind of the beautiful story of it. And then in that way, I thought I have to go and understand what did Kennedy say that made this space, this yearning to get on the moon happen? And then what was the collision of all these dates? So I went back and I... You, went there, you read the Rice Address? No, I just went back to try and understand the timeline of American history that I hadn't understood. Mm-hmm. The very funny caveat is that when you do so much research for a book and then time passes, a lot of it falls out of your mind. Like when I was revising, for instance, the section that deals with the moon landing, for which I, like, I interviewed Apollo astronauts and engineers, I really read up. But I was reading it and I was thinking, this shit is amazing. 
<laughs> like, you know, couldn't remember some of it. So as you, like any catechism you pose now about the history of the program, I'm likely to have forgotten some of it. But anyway, that go ahead. That is fine. I'm not going to ask you <laughs> specific dates or anything, but okay. more this, you just mentioned the vitriol that the American space program had incited overseas, but it was also happening within America a lot, which is something that I don't think I had ever read about or understood. Absolutely. Well, you know, it was really kind of a, it was a fringe issue. It was never really adopted by any of the groups that we think about, um, as accomplishing real change. You know, it was, there was these isolated and really remarkable events. Uh, Ralph Abernathy, who was uh, a reverend and a civil rights leader, drove something like 50 carts drawn by mules to the, uh, to the, the first Apollo, um, the Apollo 11 launch in protest of the amount of money that just was spent on one single astronaut's, you know, life during, during the space of the program and talking about what that could do for one um, person's life in the South, you know, or a family or a town and what that could do for real rural black poverty. But that wasn't, you know, it wasn't part of an ongoing kind of narrative of dissent. I think that the, the stories that stick around from that era in terms of protest are, for instance, like the Weather Underground, which is I obviously also was reading about in terms of this novel. The Weather Underground, I think, is so fascinating to people because we can trace that group from, you know, a contingent of the SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, who were um, relatively peaceful, right? We're not interested in violence. We're interested in discourse. It started in the pocket of liberal academia. It started in the pocket of things that this country really valued. And it became something that was horrific. Because you can see that narrative arc, it remains some kind of dark fable, I think, for those of us looking back at that era. And the protests of the Apollo program were really pretty isolated, you know? They were usually the project of an individual or, you know, like a group of protesters who were also just interested in ending the Vietnam War in general. And so for that reason, it kind of just gets absorbed and calcified and forgotten in terms of our memory of, of that time. The title, America was hard to find. Was that inspired by, is it Daniel Berrigan's Yeah, poem? yeah. Daniel Berrigan, while he was jailed in Danbury, Connecticut, wrote a really astonishing series of poems and letters that were later anthologized um, under the title America is Hard to Find, which comes from the poem of the same title. And one of those letters was to the Weather Underground. He was actually at really concerned with the way that that group had evolved and the fact that they had turned to violence. Um, so yeah, the, the, the title is, is in respect to him. This is the first time that a title has not just come from my own thinking, but it did not feel right to be using like my 21st century imagination in terms of titling this book. So let's kind of go back to the beginning of the book and talk about Faye, who's would you say she is the protagonist? I think I attach to her most, but the book does, you know, involve several other people. Yeah. But why did you start the book with these two sisters, Faye and Charlie, 
in the Moab desert running this bar? Like how do they find themselves there and why was it important for them to feel so isolated in the very beginning? Well, I think that both of them were suffering from, you know, the myth of the exceptional female and the woman who exists in male spaces and thrives in them. And so therefore is exempt from all of the kind of moral, the moral goods that women are otherwise expected to present to to men. And putting them in that kind of aquarium, I think was important to examine their relationship, but, but also for, for Faye to examine her relationship with American masculinity, um, the, the bar that you mention, um, which is based on a, on a bar that I read about called the Happy Bottom Writing Club, uh, which existed from like 1947 to 1953 in the Mojave Desert um, and was manned by this female aviator whose name was Poncho Barnes. But that bar was where all of the test pilots at Edwards Air Force Base came to celebrate and, you know, was just a a fount of testosterone. And I think placing Faye in the kind of gas of that was the way to plant some misandry in her. Like, I think that she starts as a girl who doesn't understand herself then she becomes a woman who hates men then she becomes a feminist then she becomes a mother then she hates her country uh and and so it was kind of important to start with a synecdoche like you know you know the 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 air force pilots being the rest of the country that was a little bit more contained and then to move outward, you know, like a some ink spreading in a glass, something like that. There's a scene between Faye and Vincent's wife and we should say who Vincent is. So there's this, um, Faye meets Vincent, who's one of the pilots and there's an instant attraction, would you say? Or does mm-hmm. it feel more like... No, I think it's more less than love. Uh, You know, a a lot of the problem that I have about the way people talk about this book, which I'm, you know, I'm not really allowed to have it. This this book is whatever it is to anybody who reads it. I fully believe in that. Like reader response theory is really important to me. But I don't think that the affair that Vincent and Faye have at the beginning of the book is really about love. I think it's about lust. I think it's about the attraction we feel to people whose composition we sense to be um, exceptionally different than ours, completely foreign. I mean, I don't know if you have this, but I certainly, like as a young woman, the way that I fucked people was just like, um, almost as like an anthropologist, you know? I mean, I just was, I was collecting and trying to understand. Um, and I think that that's what their relationship is more about. And that's bi-directional. I really identified with one scene in the book and it's between Faye and Vincent's wife, Elise. I guess, could you explain the electricity that is happening in this bar and why between these two women? And then I want to ask the second part, which is, 
don't you feel that in every woman's life there's a moment when you realise that sometimes you've betrayed a woman and if you were a more experienced woman, like if you had more years on you and you understood the world more, you wouldn't have put the put the man first or you wouldn't have put the sex first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the rallying cry of like second wave feminism, um, which perhaps was not successful, hence like the emphasis on intersectionality and third wave feminism now. But the rallying cry was no woman can be equal to a man or thought of as equal to a man until all women are thought of as equal to a man. But uh, obviously there are, there are a few things standing in the way of the world reflecting that truth back at women like Faye at that time, even women like me in this time. It's 2019 and I don't feel that I am um, treated as an equal to many of my male peers, whatever. So I think what Faye understands in that moment and just so, so the backstory for those listening and haven't read the book is that... Um, Vincent's wife, Elise, understands that her husband is having an affair, which we always understand. Um, It's never been hidden successfully that a man is having an affair, I think, for very long. Um, And so she shows up at Faye's place of work and she doesn't say anything. She just watches her and she orders everything she can off the menu and doesn't eat it. And then later they have an actual conversation. They have it outside the bar, kind of poolside. And Elise, there is the mouthpiece for an idea that I sort of began developing in my mid to late 20s, which it sounds like you also reached, which was that particularly in the dynamic of a younger woman having some dalliance with an older man and particularly when there's a female partner in the background and particularly when childbearing and child rearing are the goal and are the, you know, these, the crucial identifiers um, of a woman's personhood later in life. When all those factors are in play, Elise says to Faye, if a man takes up with a younger woman, he is not only hurting his partner, but he is sending a message to all the men around him that there's still kind of a window left open. So he's not only taking power from the wife he's left behind, he's taking power from all the women whose husbands can watch that. And it's just a real toxic fume indeed. And I think, I think I, I mean, I feel that way. I really absolutely feel that way. And I don't think that that occurred to me when I was a young woman. I was obviously inclined to think of any romantic relationship I had as the product of two people and two people alone and, you know, resultant of that very specific alchemy that happens between two people and having nothing to do with other women or the women left behind, which they frequently were. In the book you capture so beautifully, I mean, I truly felt like I experienced the walking on the moon in a way I never would have, that I never experienced watching it. So I felt like you'd absorbed all this research and then just put it through your own filter. And it was so incredible. And you kind of got to marvel at Earth in the way that they did 
kind of and see it as this strange thing in the distance, almost destroying itself. But there was this tragic fire that you capture in the book as well that happened, say, is it a year or so or 18 months before? Um, 67, the... yeah. How did that affect the psychology of those astronauts? In your interviews, did it feel like it had had this, it had obviously had a big impact on them, but how do you think it shifted the American psyche in wanting to get to the moon even more? Or what did it represent getting there? I think that what was really so heartbreaking about the way these men were trained was that they expected to lose their friends. Um, if they had been uh, test pilots, they just grew up as boys and young men were going to funerals all the time. You know, uh, there, there were always carrier landings that didn't take and uh, explosions midair. Uh, this was something that they were more or less accustomed to. So I, I'm not sure that it changed their minds in any significant way. I mean, I know that a great deal of hand-wringing happened after Chaffee and White and uh, Grissom died. And there was, you know, a big investigation, the reports of which, you know, went to Congress in terms of what, what had been done badly, you know, a dirty secret of the, of the Apollo program and the Gemini program before it and the Mercury program before it was that we were in a, in a big rush and we didn't always do things so carefully. I remember very early in my research reading something about a group of engineers, and this is in, you know, 63 or 64, who had quit because they felt that NASA wasn't doing the kind of checks um, that they should have been. And this is, this is almost similar to the the protests of the Apollo program, th these things happened, but they were so isolated and they were not part of a larger like narrative arc. There was, you know, there was no adventure story about it. There was no protagonist. And so that's kind of gets eaten. I mean, this is a minor article I read from, you know, a 1963 issue of the New York times, you know, Sunday edition. And I didn't really see it anywhere else. From your research as well, did you get a sense that the, the desire and drive to to beat the space race from the American perspective was to divert attention away from the Vietnam War and those atrocities? I don't think we can say so authoritatively. I think that it, you know, I think that it helped. But what makes it even sadder is that to me, it sort of doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if you manufacture, you know, this versicolor multi-year epic that is meant to, to just go down the throats of your citizenry so easily. If you do that to distract them from the children you're killing, or if it's just a lucky accident, if it does. Um, because just by, just by doing it, you're diverting, right? You're diverting resources, um, that should be spent in another way. I shouldn't be using the second person here. Um, this is never going to happen to you, Angela, <laughs> specifically, but yeah, I think that's, that's what I think. Early 
earlier you talked about this kind of worship of men, like this religious love of men. And <laughs> I love men too. Like I think they're gorgeous. <laughs> and in so many ways, which is something we don't talk about that much at the moment at all. Yeah, absolutely not. Where do you think that comes from? Like I'm trying to work, when you mentioned it, I was like, I wonder where that comes from in my upbringing or culturally to love them. Or is it just the fact that like we're very hetero and straight in that way? Yeah, I mean, I certainly have always felt a little disappointed in myself. Like I couldn't, I couldn't fuck one woman, but for whatever reason, this is just this is just where I am on the Kinsey scale. You know, I'm really far down to one side. I don't know that the way that I feel about like the male body is so specific to the male body. It's more an expression um, or rather it's, it's the extension of the way I feel about the body in general and the, the way I was raised to think about the body, you know, our bodies ourselves and all kinds of like seminal pro body um literature was just around me when I was growing up. It was something that was very important to my mother. I remember like this song that she made up that she taught me to sing about how beautiful my body was, you know, when I was always swimming. I think if you're swimming, you have an incredible relationship with your body. I think if you're hiking, you know, all these kinds of activities raise an alertness to different physiological functions. And they, and they tell you that they're important and you have to listen to them and you take pride in them. And this is all just to say that sex was never something that was frightening to me. I was actually just saying to someone that I remember that moment, you know, when, when everybody, when you're a kid and everybody's talking about sex and they've figured out what it is. And uh, a lot of, a lot of your friends are afraid or it seems jokey, you know? And I, this is like such a ridiculous thing to say, but I was like, I don't know. I don't feel afraid. Like that sounds incredible. <laughs> like I, I look forward to being an adult. I think I was just always a child who had some feeling for the adult world or some envy of it. But that's probably because I was exposed to it to an extent I should not have. Like my mother's, my mother and father's sexuality was never hidden from me. I understood very clearly what was going on um, in the bedrooms near me. I understood, you know, like the fury of romance and how it faded and how it started up again. And I was intercepting these phone calls sometimes. Like in many ways, I don't think that I was treated with the kind of fencing that many children do. Did writing become a way to explore all the things you were thinking? Like I'm just imagining you as a young girl and how intelligent and vibrant you must have been. Like when did you turn to writing? Well, I mean, I actually, early in my childhood, I kind of, I think I rebelled against the like small scale salon culture that both my parents um, were cultivating, you know, it was like, oh, I don't want to read this Garcia Marquez story. I was like 10 years old. Like I just, you know, I want to be normal and, and I want to be riveted at the mall. And then what happened was, you know, it was really 
quite tragic and it was kind of the defining event of my adolescence the summer before my junior year of high school and I you know I had been the class president and the star of the school play and and was really after this very squeaky path um my father and my mother by this point had a partner um they didn't marry but he was my stepfather you know in in every way to me died within a month. It was just this very, you know, shocking coincidence. And, uh, it did something to me and the way that I thought and the way that I existed in the world and how I felt safe and what I needed to communicate, um, and with whom I could communicate, you know, the answer was almost nobody, you know, there were, you know, I think for anybody who undergoes a loss at that age, there aren't a lot of people with whom one can talk, but when it's too like that, I mean, I felt, you know, I felt like I had a contagious disease. And so I really became, you know, solitary and solipsistic in a way I hadn't before. I really lost my childhood then and started writing, um, every, every day, uh, completely, which is not to say that I hadn't before, but I turned away from any kind of public expression of myself. I think, you know, it left me, it left me alone in a way that ended up being artistically, uh, seminal. How do you feel then when your books go public? Like when they get published, I mean, if they're this, is the writing a really private act for you or are you aware when you're writing a novel that it will be read? Well, you have to lie to yourself, you know. You have to pretend that you are in like a lightless place that no one can see for a very long time. And I actually love that. Like I love being deep in that dark pocket. When books publish, I wouldn't say that the the feeling in me is, is total joy. No. Um, but I, as I was saying earlier, um, I truly believe that the work, you know, no longer belongs to me and it belongs to whoever, picks it up at the bookstore and, you know, I release it to them. And how did your life change over these five years of writing the book? I mean, it's a long time to work on something and did your intention for it shift from beginning to end? I mean, this thing came out that I'm sure wasn't what you'd imagined. No, I mean, the shortest answer is just that, I mean, they were the years 24 to 29 and... I think that those are the years in any woman's life in which she stops thinking about the girl she was and starts reorient reorienting her life toward the you know the woman she wants to be. I mean, we talk about womanhood as something enjoyed or agonized over by Um, any person identifying as female over the age of 18. But I don't think with, with the fetishization of, of youth as it is, I don't think most women start thinking about that, what it is to belong to a community of women, you know, and across the planet and across different ages until a little bit later. 
Um, I think that girlhood is, is a, is a pretty powerful stench that lingers until, you know, one day you look up and it's, it's gone. Talking about friendships and women that have shaped you, there's a fantastic interview between you and your friend, Catherine Lacey, who's a fellow writer in the Paris Review, and we'll make sure we link to that so everyone can read it. How has that friendship nourished your life and your life as a writer? I mean, in, in very, you know, in very practical ways, having one of your closest friendships be with another writer, uh, of course, makes you feel seen and understood and like your artistic path has existed on a continuum because, you know, I can send Catherine a short story and she can say, there is that question that you were asking in a short story two years ago and here you're answering it in a different capacity, right? Like they, she can, she can track my trajectory in a way that's meaningful to me. I mean, other than that, Catherine is just an insanely uh, practical person whose approach to life as an artist is very similar to mine and she might even do it better. You know, I think we both have been changed by exercise and living well and eating and eating well. And, and I think that I can always, I can always talk to her about the ways that my life in it's very small moments can become cleaner, you know, like where can I allow some silence in? What can I say no to? That's interesting that you just said about having a cleaner life. Do you think as a young woman in her twenties, I mean, I'm thinking of myself here that part of that creative urge is definitely filtered through say unclean things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I really bought wholesale in my early twenties I was very interested in getting sort of to the edges of myself in moving pretty far from a center, you know, exposing myself to people that were unfamiliar, experiences that were unfamiliar, um, drugs that made reality unfamiliar. Uh, And that is not to say that I now live the life of a monk or that I don't seek out reflective surfaces that are surprising. But I became so much more interested in control and in the way that awareness was a form of identity. Like, how did I notice things? How was, it, how was the way I noticed different than the way other people noticed? And I think to get to that requires absence and silence uh, and, you know, a removal of yourself from things that are comfortable. So I still will put myself through, you know, through years and situations that deprive me of certain comforts. But I think I seek out pain a little bit less. That's the distinction. Aestheticism versus just masochism, probably. When you're in the writing process, is getting to nature part of that process now for you? I mean, I've done it everywhere and I'm really suspect of placing any circumscription on process 
in that way, just because I don't think any, very few people, you know, save the independently wealthy, um, who never have families or people who love them get to choose all the time as specifically as that. But I certainly do think that when I'm doing my very best thinking, I'm swimming every day. I don't know why it's swimming, but swimming more than any other form of exercise, it feels like writing in that you become aware which movements are unnecessary in what your power is and what it isn't. You know, there's a lot of seeing yourself as secondary because you have to, if you're swimming in a river, which is my preferred swim or even an ocean, but you have to identify the the current and kind of understand what its twists are, what the drift is there. And during the few times in my life that I've been lucky enough to really swim every day, my mind has changed, you know, it's felt like a miracle. Was it a choice in this book to try and simplify things or in a way Absolutely. this still down to the marrow of a scene or something like that? I'm so happy that you said that because I think that the unified cry, <laughs> I don't want to say unified cry, the unified consensus among people who like, I think hate my writing is just the complexity of the sentences and the, the st- all the sentences are beautiful and do all the sentences have to be beautiful. And um, that was something that I had thought about a great deal in terms of this book. And I did have an interest in ugliness and in diversity of syntax um, in a way that was new. You know, it was a, it was, there was an artistic sort of coming of age that happened. Coming of age is a term we use to talk about adolescence, but I I mean, I think in terms of the life of the artist and in terms of the life of the woman, it happens in your late 20s. There are so many things that I know for certain about myself, you know, that I know categorically about what I can do as a writer and where I struggle about who I tend to love and who I should love as a woman seeking a partner, et cetera, that I just didn't know, you know, only a few years ago. And it feels, it feels like a new life in certain, in certain ways, which is remarkable. So yeah, on the craft level, I think a lot about the sort of subjectivity that can be communicated by any given sentence and how it sounds. The subjectivity suggested just by whether syllables are kind of winnowing as the sentence reaches its conclusion by the density of certain sounds within paragraphs, by stress and and the lack of stress. And that's probably something that teaching has given me. Um, You know, also something that happened from 25 to 30 was I really became a teacher. Um, I think a lot about like tiers of identification. One of my best friends, he and I have this conversation all the time that is kind of like, well, what's the most important part of you today? And some, some days the most important part of him is that he's Pakistani and sometimes it's that he's gay and sometimes it's that he's a scholar and an architect, but we can, we can always visualize them in terms of tiers. Always all the parts are present. And For me, you know, I started teaching around 24, but over the course of those years, that tier of identification kept, kept slipping up and it was a real rigorous, 
you know, examination of what I really thought about what a sentence needed to do and what kind of sentences it needed to be in proximity to and which kind of figurative language was appropriate when, whether it was ever appropriate. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful gift that I've been given in that in, in giving other people an education, I think I was educated about my own artistic sensibility, uh, in a way that's been a real discovery, you know? You said that sometimes the men you like aren't the ones that we you wish you'd liked. <laughs> and I'm not going to ask you more about that, although I will when we're not recording. I'm kidding. Mm. But I think sometimes even the writers we're attracted to, it's a bit like that. Like sometimes you think in this moment, I'm not meant to love this person I, or I'm not meant to crave their writing. But I wonder if there are any writers like that that you return to that sometimes you think you know am I right to love this this person's work or can I I do think that in the last five years I've made a real effort to expose myself to different kinds of stylists you know and and those whose inclinations are are different than mine it's so easy, right, to just kind of stay in your lane, both reading and writing. And in terms of the of the people that I love and always return to, I mean, I think that an anecdote I'll share is that a couple years ago, I gave a friend who is not a writer, uh, James Salter's Light Years, which is one of my favorite novels. And I, I'm, I've often said it's my favorite novel. I return to it every few years. And it's always kind of a metric of what I think about this sentence, but also like where my politics are and where my life is. You know, like when I first read that novel, Nedra was older than I was. And the last time I read it, I was furious to find out she was younger at the beginning of the novel than I was reading it. And anyway, I gave this friend light years and we went out to brunch and I said, how'd you love, do you love that novel? Right. And it had been, it had been a couple years since I had read it. I was due for another reread. And she said, yeah, you know, those sentences are marvelous, but, uh, he's really always writing about women's necks, isn't he? <laughs> Why is he always writing about women's necks? And I thought, fuck. And it wasn't the first time that I thought fuck in that particular way, and the fuck was my thinking has been colonized by the male voice and by the male gaze. And all of my, you know, my conception of female solitude so often has been one painted by a man admiring it, right? And so writers like that, and I'm not even sure, you know, like to whom I want to compare Salter. I, I, I maintain that he is a, a singular talent and has, and has taught me so much. I've tried to move slightly away from, you know, or I've tried to understand where their tendencies have influenced mine and, and remove that. I remember a really startling discovery halfway through a revision of, you know, maybe the first or second draft of this novel where I realized that there just were so many more descriptions of the female body than the male body. You know, that was just how I had been taught to think about women within fictive realities. How did they move before? How did they think? 
And that was so alarming to me. And it was important that I, that I realized it. It's also interesting to be a teacher and have understood that about your own work and then ask of your students to notice it too, I'm mm-hmm. sure, because mm-hmm. we're all, we've all internalized the way the majority looks at things. And right. so it's kind of a shedding of that or a... Well, but for them, they, they might not have internalized it. I mean, they're hyper, they're hyper vigilant about this kind of thing mm. in a way that's so important. I mean, when I think about what Generation Z and the younger millennials... What, what am I? I'm, I'm 88, so I'm like a mid-millennial. I'm not the youngest of them at all. But anyway, when I think about what that micro-generation of people are doing in terms of gender politics, it's so exciting to me. I think it's going to be their major political contribution. And I think the world in 15 years is going to look completely different. Uh, it's amazing. It is a searching for identity, isn't it? A certain type of identity. And then it's coming to terms with certain things America has done as a, as a country. And America kind of takes on this personality in itself. I mean, I think that what is, uh, you know, of many things that I, that I revile about my country is it's, individualist bent, right? At the, at the cost of taking care of people when they need it. But I also think that if you look at moments of atrocity through the individualistic lens, as I did in research for this novel, you begin to feel less afraid of those moments of upheaval or you you can see them as less about evil and more about error, you know? I don't know why this is the anecdote that comes to mind, but I remember reading a memoir by one of Nixon's aides and Nixon suffered from really severe and bizarrely expressed social anxiety. And one of the representations of that, or one of the expressions of that rather, was that when an aide came into the Oval Office, they were expected to stand in the same place in the room to hold their notepad, the same notepad, at the same angle in front of their chest, to use the same pen, and they were trained um, in the same kind of idioms and maxims. Like, basically, he wanted that person to seem familiar to him. And when I thought about the kind of fear that sits behind you know, the craziness of that dictum. And I'm not saying that doesn't, that doesn't seem completely evil. But when I think about the fear that sits behind that, it suddenly seems like the evil of that era and the evil of our country is not so far removed from just the worst voices in ourselves that we can't silence. Um, And you can find a story like that about almost anybody. 
And so reading such personal accounts of people on either side of the political spectrum helped me feel less afraid of the kind of line that divides our country now. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kathleen. I'm still wondering if the America she hoped to find is the America she found. I think for the characters in the book, um, they're all grappling with what America is, just like all of us are today and Kathleen is as well. So even though there are no definitive answers and it means something different to everyone, maybe it's always good to keep asking and trying to find or examine the country in which you live. Let me know what you think about this episode at Lit Up Show on Twitter and Instagram. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.